Good morning. We are continuing on in the series. We're going to sing at the end of chapel because we've got some songs that just really fit well with what's in the text. So we'll go through the text, then we're going to sing our praise to the Lord out loud. So let's praise him through listening well. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. This morning, we are going to look at verses 1 through 13. We are looking at the fact that in our identity in Christ, we are the mystery revealed in Christ. By that we, I really mean we, the church, is the mystery revealed in Christ. So we're going to look at this this morning. This text is a little bit awkward when you look at it in the original language. How many of you have ever written a paper and had a sentence fragment in your paper? Raise your hand. Yeah. Well, we encounter Paul here today with a sentence fragment. Uh, We do this often. We talk about it sometimes as stream of consciousness, perhaps in writing, although you should at least get a complete thought in a sentence before you put your punctuation. When a professor does it in class, we call it chasing a rabbit, right? You, You sit back and you know certain professors have certain topics that they really love to talk about and you can ask a question and get them to chase a rabbit, right? That doesn't happen around here. You don't, you don't have that. Yeah. Some of you are agreeing. Okay. And then how many of you have ever been talking in a conversation and all of a sudden you ask yourself the question, how did I get on this topic? Because you start over here and then it sparks something in your mind and you move over here and then it sparks something and you're way over here, but you started over here and you're like, what in the world happened to have me talk about this right now? How many of you have done that? Raise your hands. Admit, all right, I'm not the only one. All right, we do it. So this is what we're going to encounter today. Paul starts off in our text in verse one and says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And then all of a sudden he just stops and he goes off on this tangent. And then in verse 14, he comes back to, for this reason, it's almost like he's, he's writing or he's dictating and he's going along and he's, he starts talking. He's like, oh, wait a second. I got to get back to what I was talking about. So for this reason, just to remind us, here you go. These are the two text indicators. In our text, we're going to see the word mystery four times. In our text, we're going to see Paul start with the fact that he was a prisoner of the gospel. And then at the end, he comes back to talk about the suffering. So that's that's the reason for the breakdown is that this is kind of a complete unit where he says, for this reason, talks about being a prisoner, comes back to suffering. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. And as is our custom, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? The central idea of the text that you will see today is that Paul relayed the mystery of God to reconcile Jews and Gentiles in the church. Notice it as we read, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you, Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages 
in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Dear Lord, I pray today that you would help, help us to catch a glimpse of what you have for us in this text, apply it to our lives, and live in a way that glorifies and honors you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, and you may be seated. All right, so if you're taking notes this morning, the central idea of the text is that Paul relayed, he relayed it because it was something that he had received, it was a revelation that had been given to him, then he gives it to others, and then through the church, it's even made known to the principalities and powers and authorities in the heavenly places. So Paul relayed the mystery, that mystery in our text four times this morning is that Jews and Gentiles are reconciled in the church. So your central idea is Paul relayed the mystery of God to reconcile Jews and Gentiles in the church. This is part of his plan, as mentioned in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, to reconcile all things to himself. So this is a snippet of the part. This is not the whole plan. It's part of the plan. It's to reconcile Jews and Gentiles in the church. And this is what Paul becomes a minister of. It's the reason he becomes a prisoner. So we look first at our first point of two points this morning. The first point being the mystery. Now the mystery I have broken down verses one through six. Now this is a slightly awkward breakdown. I admit it to you up front, but as I tried to, to divide this text out, the, the text divides really well into the mystery and then the ministry. Uh, now, the sentence in the Greek ends at the end of verse 7. I understand that. I know that. And so this is a little bit of an awkward breakdown, but yet we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 as the mystery, and then we'll see that it talks about his ministry of this mystery in verses 7 through 13. He begins with, for this reason, I've already told you it's a fragment, it's where he starts off, and then he says he is a prisoner. But don't miss what he says he's a prisoner of. He is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, why does Paul not say, I'm a prisoner of Caesar? I'm a prisoner of the Romans. I'm a prisoner of something else. Yet he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. We perhaps could draw just off of this passage of scripture, a theology of how to suffer well. Look at what Paul does in this particular text, and he does it in other places as well, such as the cross-reference in Colossians 1, 24 through 29, a very similar section where he starts off and says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. He rejoices in suffering. How do we do that? We don't like to suffer. I don't like to suffer. But when we're suffering, we should notice that the focus is not on ourselves. The focus of this passage in particular is on others and in the prayer that follows and in the prayer that was before. Paul here says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ, but he doesn't go on. Think about what we might do. We might say, look, I really need you guys to pray that I get out. Send some relief. Come help me. Get me out of this jail cell. This is a horrible thing that I'm in jail. And even if it's in his house and even if it's more comfortable than being in bars, this is bad. You guys help me out. 
How often do my prayers, and I assume probably most of yours, start with that laundry list of things I need? God, I really need for you to do this, 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 and this for me, as though he's my genie in a bottle, and I get my three wishes every time I take time to go to him in prayer. And here, a theology of suffering says we're not focused on ourselves. We're not completely self-centered in what we do. But here he's looking out to others. Hey, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Why Jesus Christ? Well, I don't know. I can't read Paul's mind, but perhaps there's a notion here and that he understands the eternal perspective of the one he serves. He's not a prisoner of this temporal kingdom, the Roman Empire, or the temporal Caesar. He's a prisoner for Jesus Christ. God is sovereign and God is in control. Now, in our theology of suffering, if we find ourselves suffering, which most of us really don't know what true suffering is, but if we find ourselves suffering, if we cannot focus on ourselves, if we can pray for others in the midst of our suffering, if we can have an eternal perspective to know that our suffering is only for a limited time, and if we can trust in the sovereignty of God that our suffering is for our good, then it's going to help us to suffer well and to suffer in the right way. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul, formerly known as Saul, the coats who related his feet, and the persecutor of the church, is saved on the road to Damascus. As he's saved on that road, he changes completely. And now the one who used to persecute is the one who is the minister, the one who is given the gospel to take to you, the Gentiles, to us, the Gentiles. As he does this, it's this reason that he is in jail. It's his willingness to teach the Gentiles that brought about his arrest in Jerusalem. We see it in Acts chapter 21. And particularly, he was seen with Trophimus, an Ephesian convert in the city. So the fact that Paul was seen with an Ephesian Gentile causes the whole city to be up in arms and causes him to be arrested and him to suffer for being seen with a minority. You all know what happened recently in Pittsburgh, the tragedy that took place. And I would say to you that there's no place for anti-Semitism in the Christian faith. You really can't say, I love Jesus, but I don't like the Jewish people. Because Jesus is Jewish. He was a Jewish carpenter. He was raised from the dead. He is at the right hand of the Father, still in his human aspects, a Jewish person. And so it's impossible for us to say, I hate Jews, without saying, I hate Jesus. So let's keep in mind as Christians, we should be staunch defenders for the Jewish people. Here, it's a Jew who is with the Gentiles and is put in prison for that reason. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship, I love that he uses the word stewardship in the first section, minister in the second section. Stewardship, which we focus on frequently here, as you know, minister, the word diakonos, which means the table servant, the table waiter, where we get our word deacon. It's the word to serve. And here you see in this text, the stewardship and the service, which is what we talk about when we talk about leadership, stewardship, service, and influence. And here you see it right here in the text as it flows out. He has a 
the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. And three times in this text, you'll see it talks about the grace that was given. It comes in the next in verse seven, the grace which was given me. And then in verse eight, this grace was given. The grace was not something that we earn. It's not something that we deserve. It is a gift that we have been given. And just like any gift, we are to be good stewards of that gift that was given to us. Verse three, he says it was the mystery. We see that word, the mysterion, that word that was made known to him by revelation. He didn't make it up. He didn't invent it. He didn't originate it. It was given to him and he has written about it briefly, I assume in this letter and not in other context. He's talked to us about what the mystery is in chapter one and in other locations. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ. Now he says here, it was the mystery of Christ that was not made known to the sons of men and other generations. Now that's key for us to determine exactly what the mystery is. Because the mystery can't just be that there's a benefit for the Gentiles because we understand that throughout the Old Testament, the Jewish, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people were to be a benefit to all nations. And so there was a benefit that had already been revealed to go out to the Gentiles. The part that was not revealed is that he would no longer use the theocracy of the Jewish nation, but there would be this thing that we call the church, the ecclesia that would come together. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would come down and this new word, quantity or fellowship would be used for the first time. And through the fellowship of the Spirit in a local church context, through that ecclesia, through that assembly, through that gathering, that then we would be living in what we often call the church age. What was not made known in the Old Testament was the use of the local church. And so we see here that it's talking about the things not made known previously to sons of men and other generations as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And in verse six, it gives us this definition. Look at what it says. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. There's three different compound words here. Fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promises. All of this in Christ Jesus. And when we see that phrase in Christ Jesus, because we have so focused on that in him, in the beloved, in Christ, in Jesus, you understand that is a loaded phrase that hearkens our mind back to all of those mentions in chapter one, all that is wrapped up with what it means to be in Christ, all that it means to be saved in Christ. And so here the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Now, members of the same body. Now, this is key for us to get this text right. What does it mean to be members of the same body? What body? Well, we look at the context of what's been written to us, and we remember that in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, he tells us that the church is that body. Let me read it to you. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we see it emphasized there. We're part of the same body. This is what the mystery is. Jews and Gentiles, fellow heirs, members of the same church, partakers of the same promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, let me, let me allow you to take note of something here. It doesn't talk about our individual Christianity in this particular context. Now, there's a part of individual nature of Christianity and that each one of us has to repent and believe in our own selves. Somebody can't do us for it. 
for, do that for us. But there's also a corporate nature in our Christian walk that oftentimes I think we, and I think it's my tendency to, as, a, as an American, as the rugged individualism of the American society tends to push back against. Too often we tend to think of our Christian faith as my Christian faith, as something I do all by myself, as something this individual, and yet we forget that when the New Testament talks about this, it's often the we, it's often the joint heirs together. It's that different groups are brought together into one body to have conversations, to walk with one another, to struggle together. And what the devil wants you to do is take your individual struggles and back off into a far corner and be isolated from everybody so that you struggle by yourself. You feel like you're the only one that has these problems. Nobody else understands you and you drift into a deep, dark pit. And what the Bible talks about us doing is coming together into that ecclesia, that assembly, that church, the called out ones who walk together, who struggle together, who lock arms so that if one falls, the other picks them back up and says, you don't stay there. You're coming with us. We're gonna keep going on the process and road of sanctification. So notice, as we look through the book of Ephesians, there's a joint we in this. It's not all about me. It's not all about you. It's not all about an individual nature. And I fear for some of you. Right now, we force you to be around other people. We put you in dormitory spaces that are so small that you are gonna have conflicts, which we call discipleship. It's on purpose that the rooms aren't bigger and more spacious. And it's on purpose that you have to live with other people and be in a community of other people. So it forces you to learn how to interact with other people. Those are good life skills to know how to interact with somebody else. But in our nature, at least for some of us, our inclination is to push away and withdraw and retract from other people. We force you to go eat in chucks together at the same time and interact and rub shoulders with other people, to go to class together. You don't have individual study moments unless you're learning an instrument or something of that nature. You're around other people. Now, when you leave this place, what are you gonna do? If you go to work, sit in your little corner, do your little thing, go home, stay in your little corner, do your little thing, go online, play video games, online, never see anybody, it's just online. If you retract from society and don't get plugged in and engaged with other Christians and other believers, you are gonna struggle. So file this away in the database for future reference. You need to have a good community around you of brothers and sisters in Christ that will pray for you, that will ask you difficult questions, that will challenge you when you start drifting off the path, that will lock arms with you, that will make sure that you are headed in the right direction. And if you're headed in the wrong direction, you need to have friends in your life that will call you out and say, what are you doing? This is not right. And if you don't have a good enough friend in your life to call you out on something you're doing wrong because they're afraid their friendship's not that close, and that you wouldn't react well, if you don't have that friend in your life, you need to find a friend like that in your life. That friend that will pick up the phone and say, what are you doing? It's us. It's together. It's all of us. It's not one of us. We are members of the same body. I thought about doing an illustration. I'm not going to do it because I can't sing. Here's what the illustration would be like. All of you sing your favorite song at one time. And you know how this would go. You would all sing your favorite song at one time and it would be just a jumbled mess. 
The introverts in the room wouldn't sing, first of all. They would just sit there and look at me like I'm stupid. And the extroverts would sing really loud, and they would sing different songs, and it would just be some chaotic deal. And then we would all sing a song together. And you guys sing really well, and those of you that sing well sing out loud, and so it would sound beautiful. And the point of that illustration would be that individually, all of us doing our own thing is a jumbled mess, but when we all come together and we all worship together and we all sing the same thing together under the leadership of a head, then it sounds beautiful. And that's what the Christian walk, that's what the church is supposed to be about. All of us with different gifts come together and we have one united purpose. And because of that one united purpose, we run and serve together and live together and it's beautiful. That's what we should see. It's the mystery. We look now in verse seven at the ministry. Of this gospel, I was made a minister, a diaconus, a servant, a table waiter, a server, if you will, of the gospel, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. What's he to do? In verse eight, he says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, the grace that was given, notice the two things here, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages. There's so much I want to touch on just in this one verse. When you leave here and when you go to find a church and you get involved in a church, make sure you find a church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly. And then that brings to light the mystery of the text of scripture and what the plan is. So what that means is if some church is gonna preach the gospel clearly and then they're gonna bring to light the text of scripture, then it's gotta be focused on the word. You do not need to go to a church that has a great communicator that tells funny stories and makes you laugh for 30 minutes so that you don't feel like you've been at church. You need to go somewhere where they will open up the Bible and go word by word, verse by verse, text by text through the scripture so that the scripture then sinks into your heart, challenges you, makes you feel really uncomfortable, allows you then to grow in your faith so that you are challenged where you need to be challenged, convicted where you need to be convicted, encouraged where you need to be encouraged so that your walk with Christ will be strong. So as you leave here, I challenge you, don't go find a candy store that makes you feel good. Go find some place that will preach the word of God that every now and then should make you feel really uncomfortable. Because we are sinners and our hearts are idol factories and the preaching of the word will challenge our hearts to say to us, you can't do that. That's where you need to make home. You know that this is not church. This is a great greenhouse for growth. But when you leave this place, you should go find somewhere where you have babies crying, where you have blue hairs or gray hairs in the audience that you can go to and say, teach me wisdom Talk to me about what you've learned in this life where you see illustrations that are all over the place, not necessarily aimed just at 18 to 22 year olds, where all of the music that you sing is not your music. You probably don't like some of it. You're like, man, that's a really old song. Why are we singing that? And then you look over to the other side of the congregation and one of the really old ladies is over there crying because that's the song that she came to know Christ during, or that song was sung at the revival service where she came to know Christ. And you look around, you realize that this is bigger than me. This is part of a body that is gathered together. This is beautiful. This is the local church. In this text, we also see here that he says, I am the very least of all the saints. Now, this is not good grammar, but this is good theology. 
he takes a superlative and adds to it a comparative in the original language. And we try to clean it up when we bring it over into the English. So what this really would say is, I'm the leastest or the least of the least or very least. And all of us have seen people who use these things in the wrong way. In fact, when, when you have kids, kids use things in the wrong way before they learn about the comparatives and the superlatives. You know what these are in your mind, even if you don't know what they are when I use those particular words. Think about old, older, oldest. Think about smart, smarter, smartest. You understand if you wanna compare something, use smarter. If you wanna have the superlative, it's the best, use smartest. So to put it in language that we would clearly relate to, if you are smart, you get a 2.0 mug. If you are smarter, you get a 3.0 mug. If you are smartest, you get a 4.0 mug. Actually, you, don't, you only get the 4.0. You have to buy the 2.0, but you can buy those, so it's okay. So Paul here uses bad grammar. Paulus in the Latin means little. Paul, by tradition, we understand was small. So maybe Paul's just making fun of himself here, but I think Paul is really showing a genuine sense of humility. And I would say to us, there's a great application here for all of us to have a genuine sense of humility. The grace that was given, the grace that was given, the grace that was given to me, the very least, the leastest of all the different people that can minister to the gospel. Now think about who Paul is and how we would normally react to this. Hey, I'm the guy that was on the road and I saw the light. You didn't see the light, I saw the light. That light came down to me. I'm the chosen one. I'm the guy that got to be the missionary to the Gentiles. Not you guys, that was me. I'm the guy that gets to have all of these great accolades in heaven like the, the lashes and the imprisonment and all of these letters that I wrote in the New Testament. That's me. Isn't that how it would sound? And you all look at me up here on the stage doing this and you go, that sounds really ridiculous, you should stop. But guys, how often is it that even if we're just joking sometimes in life, we walk around and we bow our chest out and we throw our shoulders back and we begin to walk a little bit of a strut and we start talking about how great we are. Even if it's in our own minds and we're smart enough not to let it come out of our mouth, it's in our minds that we're the stuff. Here's Paul. I am the leastest. I am the very least I'm not worthy of all this grace I've been given. It's a ministry for me to serve. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Notice the humility. He is to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Reminds us of the riches of grace in 1.7 and 2.7, the riches of his mercy in 2.4. It is the unsearchable mystery and riches of Christ. Verse 9 and 10 here, look at with me if you will. He says it's to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of this mystery hidden for ages, Jews and Gentiles together in the church, the church age. God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom, manifold, the, the variety, the differences that we see of God might be made known now, not just to us, but to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places as they look on. We see it happens through the church. Now, this is not through some universal church because the universal church of all believers at all times doesn't meet. There's no unity. There's no conversation that takes place. This is talking about a local assembly, a local church. 
So again, I emphasize to you the importance of the local church. It's God's conduit for power and change in this earth. It's God's pilot program to show us what heaven's going to be like. It's, it's the sample at Costco that says, if you buy this, you're going to get a taste of this. This is really good. It's the sample, but you can't buy it yet. And when we go to a good church, a healthy church, a well-functioning church, it should be a sample of what we're going to experience. When you have genuine, authentic Christian community like we have here, it's a sample of what's going to take place. So I encourage you to make sure you get involved in a church. And when he says through the church, he doesn't mean a building. We have really bad theology on the building and the people and the church sometimes. How many of you know what this is? This is the church. What's that? There's the steeple. Open it up. And there's the people. How bad of a theology are we teaching our kids? If you're gonna go into children's ministry, don't you dare every, I will show up at your church. This is a building, and most of them don't have steeples. But you open it up, and there's the church. And it doesn't rhyme, and I don't care. It's good theology, right? <laughs> you, the people, we, the people, the called out ones, ecclesia, called out, gathered together, translated often as assembly. The assembly is the church. So what's the mystery? It's that the Jews and the Gentiles are together in an assembly. It's that people from all walks of life, that manifold wisdom of God, come together and love one another. And you say, yeah, but you know, that's really hard. Yeah, it is, because we're all sinners. So a group of sinners get together and love one another in their sanctification process through the power of the Spirit. You know what? My church is bad. So I just, I just don't go, because it's bad. All right, how many Cleveland Browns fans do we have in the room today? Anybody? All right. Now, I'm just saying, for four hours on a Sunday, I can flip on the television screen and watch any group of fans come together and unite for a single purpose. In the rain, in the sleet, in the snow. They park hours away from the stadium. They walk like 30 minutes because there's no close parking spots so that they can sit out in the cold where they may not even have a good view of what's going on and they get rained on and it's wet and it's nasty and their team might even lose. And they're all there together cheering because there's a common purpose that unites them and that common purpose is whatever team it may be. And if you're a Cleveland Browns fan, don't ever let me hear you say, I don't go to church because my church is bad. You are not a bandwagon fan if you like the Browns. Yeah, I give you that. Perseverance, loyalty, I will give you that. But how often will we not go to church because I can't get a close parking spot in the first two rows, 10 feet away from the entrance, and I might get my hair wet as I walk into chapel, and when I sit down, it's a little bit too cold, or it's a little bit too hot, or the seat's a little bit too uncomfortable. Have you ever been to a football game? They're plastic seats. They're not uncomfortable. You stand up at those football games for hours on end, and yet you go to church, and they say, stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down. You go, I can't do all this. This is just tiring. I don't know what in the world's going on here. All right, now I'm having fun, but you get my point, right? So let me give you a few quotes just to drive this home. This is a quote from John Stott. He says this, if the church is central to God's purpose 
As seen both in history and the gospel, it must surely also be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center? Here's another quote for you from R. Kent Hughes. The bottom line is this. The church is not an option for believers, nor is supporting it an option. I'm not saying you have to go to church to be a Christian, but you also do not have to go home to be married. However, if you do not frequent your home, your relationship will be in jeopardy. Attendance and participation in your local church is not an option. Paul's gospel was Christ and the church. Now, I don't mean by this quote that you could lose your salvation, but if you don't attend a church, I might question whether you have ever truly been saved. How can you love Jesus and hate his bride? How can you submit to Jesus' authority and reject the purpose that he has in this earth to accomplish what he wants? How can you surrender your life to him and then deny what he has established on this earth? We close with this, verse 12. It says in verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We are saved by grace through faith. Instead of crawling, groveling, cowering to a vengeful, capricious ruler, we go with boldness and confidence through faith to a loving father. I'm reminded of the words of and can it be when it says no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Bow your heads as we close in prayer and transition to music. Paul relayed the mystery of God to reconcile Jews and Gentiles in the church. Dear Lord, I pray that you would help us to be humble. I pray that you would help us to be good ministers and good stewards and good servants of your word. I pray that you would help us to worship you and to love your church. In Jesus' name, amen.